We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode and catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. KCBS Radio, original podcasts. The death toll continues to climb in Turkey and Syria following the tragic and catastrophic 7.8 and 7.5 magnitude earthquakes on Monday and the aftershocks that follow. But as relief efforts and mutual aid begin to flow abroad from California and the Bay Area and across the world, many are wondering whether similar quakes will have the same impact here when the inevitable so-called big one hits. From KCBS Radio, I'm Mallory Samara, and this is Bay Current. For today's episode, I chat with our very own KCBS Radio reporter, Chris Ann Carlo, who dove into this question with two experts, who you'll hear from in a bit. How do the Turkey earthquakes equate to any past uh, earthquakes we've had here in California? Yeah, sure. And they do to a number of them, and especially here in the Bay Area. There, there were a couple, of course, 1906, the earthquake that hit San Francisco, the world famous earthquake, probably one of the most consequential earthquakes in all of human history. And uh, that was on the San Andreas Fault and you know registered just about the same as what we saw in Turkey. Uh, we had a lesser earthquake on the Hayward Fault in 1868. I think that one was a 6-8. And uh, that one before the great earthquake of 1906 was the great San Francisco earthquake, right? So yeah. it, that yielded a lot of destruction as well. We've seen earthquakes in, in Southern California, certainly the Northridge earthquake in 1994, Ridgecrest uh, in 2019. That one actually ended up, I think it was 7.1 at the uh, at the final tally there. So we, we've seen significant earthquakes like what we've seen in Turkey. Um, a bit different, though, for a lot of reasons. One is that the ones that were most destructive happened during times when we weren't quite up to snuff when it came to building codes and standards. Uh, secondarily, they happened also when there weren't a lot of people living in California. So there were mm-hmm. other bigger earthquakes before that. Just, you know, not a lot of people to record exactly what happened aside from you know the uh, the indigenous folks who, who lived here. And then, you know, as we've evolved, we've evolved the state with earthquakes. And because of that, our building standards are among the best, if not the best in the world. Yeah. Well, how were they the same? I mean, we have magnitude, but how were they the same in type or in geologically speaking? Yeah. So I've talked to some seismologists just about the similarities here between the East Anatolian Fault, which is this uh, fault zone that the earthquakes occurred on in Turkey. And, you know, was there anything similar here? And the corollary is going to be the the San Andreas. I mean, the San Andreas really is the only one with the capability of that sort of strength of a 7.8. The Hayward 
fault, the Calaveras fault, which are connected and they're part of the greater San Andreas fault zone. Uh, there is potential there for a large earthquake. Uh, there was a big survey done in, uh, I think, 2018, and it was called Haywired. And the USGS got together with a bunch of, uh, of scientists and geologists and seismologists and tried to figure out exactly how destructive that would be. Um, now, the conventional wisdom is that the Hayward Fault, that the Calaveras Fault, doesn't have the potential for that sort of 7.8 earthquake. Um, it is an extreme outlier, but I talked to one seismologist who said it could be possible. And he pointed to predictions for the East Anatolian Fault Zone as not being able to yield anything bigger than a certain threshold, and these earthquakes have gone beyond that. So there's always a possibility that we just have underestimated the potential power there. Is it, again, a probability? No. Is it a likelihood? No. He said, again, that it is an extreme outside possibility. The Hayward Fault is more of a wild card. That voice you heard was Ross Stein, CEO of Templar, a seismic risk app and new site. He's also a lecturer in geophysics at Stanford. We know that the that it produced a magnitude 6.8 in 1868. And in fact, that earthquake was known as the Great San Francisco Earthquake until 1906 because it did so much damage to the city. But that guy was only a 6.8. And in the weird math of earthquake magnitudes... The 1868 earthquake was one thirtieth the size of the earthquake that just struck Turkey. So the question is, could the Hayward Fault produce an earthquake as large as what we see in Turkey? Well, the East Anatolian Fault, the one that ruptured yesterday, is kind of the sister of the Hayward Fault. They slip at the same rate. They're about the same length. So by any measure, yes, it's possible. Not likely, but possible. So the Calaveras Fault has even a slower slip rate. We know less about it. And it's a mangy fault. It's not a nice, clean fault that you looks like somebody cut it with a butter knife. But we've learned the hard way, with humility, that earthquakes really don't play by our rules. So even a mangy fault on a, on a really good day can knock off a very large earthquake. So the, the short answer is all of these are menaces, and we need to respect what they couldn't do. You bring up an interesting point in that before in California, you know, when these earthquakes happened, there weren't as many people living here. Buildings were probably not as tall as we have them now, um, but we now we have uh, more coating and things like that that will hopefully prevent, uh, you know, too much catastrophic damage. But architecturally speaking, both people that you spoke with listed perhaps how it might affect the Bay Area building-wise. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, right? We think that we have great building standards here, and we do have great building standards here, but the codes are designed not to ensure that the building continues to survive, but that the people inside the building survive. And so what that means is that uh, the building mm-hmm. stays relatively standing as the earth shakes and in the moments after an earth shakes. But the utility of the building is not necessarily there after the earthquake has happened. And so that's the issue that a lot of seismologists and people just really within the earthquake community have raised again and again and again over, <laughs> I would argue, you know, past 50 years, but really intensively since the Northridge earthquake in 94, that, hey, we've got to consider the fact that, yeah, people may survive, 
But these buildings will be red tagged. And mm-hmm. if they're red tagged, which means people can't go in them, then you're talking about a massive economic hit to, say, downtown San Francisco or downtown Oakland or San Jose or Los Angeles. And that's the concern that people don't talk quite as much about, that maybe our building standards should go beyond just, hey, let's keep the uh, let's keep the building upright to let's keep the building upright and easily repaired so that we can move on after the earthquake happens. If a building goes through very, very strong shaking and doesn't collapse but can't be repaired afterwards, it has succeeded as far as the building code is concerned. Uh, But I don't think that's what people want. I think people want um, buildings that can survive big earthquakes. That's just not what we're delivering. That's Keith Porter. He's chief engineer at the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction and adjunct professor at University of Colorado Boulder. Actually, nine out of 10 red tag buildings are restored to service. They're repaired. It's just very costly. And what we have to do, we know how to do it. It's the, the, the technology is very clear. We just haven't bothered to do it. Um, and what's missing uh, is we need to have political leaders tell code writers that life safety is not enough, that uh, the public expects more, and therefore the building code has to deliver more. We simply have not had the governor uh, stand up and say that. An assembly member, uh, Adrian Nazarian, tried to uh, make a change a few years ago where our buildings would be uh, more earthquake resilient, at least new ones. And uh, Governor Brown vetoed that, that bill that passed. So what's missing here is not technology, it's not know-how, and it's not money. The cost to make buildings um, far more disaster resilient is really small, on the order of an added 1% uh, to construction cost. I was a reporter in Los Angeles for a number of years, and, and Northridge is this sort of earthquake that every, everybody still talks about, you know, because yeah. of the amount of damage that it did, but also what it revealed. And what it revealed were deficiencies in our architecture and our infrastructure. I mean, we saw the, the highways that pancaked down, and, you know, people ended up dying because of that. We saw soft story buildings. These are buildings that um, that don't have the anchor support at the, at the base of the foundation that, that you need, the reinforced steel that you need in order for the uh, the building to stay standing and we saw a number of buildings that basically just lost that bottom layer uh, you know they pancaked down on that bottom layer we also saw there were certain sorts of buildings that had a specific type of weld and that weld proved very brittle and that created issues as well as we look and the fact of the matter is we've known this since 1994 and yet still many of these buildings are standing and they're not small buildings. We're talking about high rises, close to 40 of them in downtown San Francisco. We have this kind of older steel frame building that we built from the early 1960s until 1994 that are far more vulnerable to earthquakes than we thought they were going to be when we designed them. We discovered that in the 1994 Northridge earthquake, and we figured out how to fix them. But it was so expensive that um, very few buildings have actually been fixed. There are, so you look at much of downtown San Francisco, um, all those high-rise buildings built between about 1960 and about 1994, they're almost all this kind of building. These buildings can collapse in earthquakes. They are far more vulnerable than we thought they were going to be. So, 
it is quite conceivable that one or more high-rise buildings in downtown San Francisco would collapse in uh, uh, an earthquake like the one that they just had in Turkey. Um, and that would kill, uh, you know, it could easily kill a thousand people. So before Northridge, we had no idea that there was an Achilles heel to our seismically strongest buildings, our steel, what's called moment frame buildings that had a weakness and all those welds cracked. And this is a problem with earthquakes. After the 1995 Kobe earthquake in Japan, all the buildings look great unless you look closely and so they were missing one floor. On the 11th floor, it pancaked into a couple feet thick because the code changed and they were able to use thinner uh, steel at that level. And so all the buildings had a weakness and they all collapsed at that joint. So there's a lot of very good techniques to anticipate how buildings are going to respond to earthquakes and those are being applied. But we also have to be humble about this and recognize that each earthquake teaches us something important we need to learn to make ourselves more resistant. So, you know, Northridge changed, I think, a lot of the equation when it came to how we talk about earthquakes and how we prepare for earthquakes. You get the you know great American shakeout out of that. I mean, we've really just radically transformed in California how we feel about earthquakes because of 94 and also 89 Loma Prieta. Yeah. And, you know, finally, why, you know, I know that you heard from a couple of people about this, but it seems like we and we do have good coding. But in the long run and in the bigger picture, um, what has stopped us from doing more? Politics, money. Right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what it comes down to, because when you look at, for example, the, the wells that need to be fixed on these high rises, it's not cheap. You know, you got to go back through and you got to fix hundreds of them in a building and it's going to cost upwards of $10 million, if not more, right, mm -hmm. for each of these buildings. Uh, that's a lot of money. And people think, OK, well, Q1 to Q2. They're not thinking, OK, well, what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years? Yeah. You know, one of the guys I talked to, he had a great quote about the fact that you know, we're all collectively standing on a railroad track right now and the trains are coming. We don't know when it's going to get here, but it's going to get here. We're not moving off these tracks because we're not doing enough to fix these buildings. One of these buildings, I mean, you think about this, one of these buildings, one of these high rise buildings in downtown San Francisco, not even collapses, but just ends up red tagged. You're talking about blocks surrounding that building that are now off limits. That means all the stores. That means all the restaurants. That means all the apartments. Everything that is in that span is off limits. And think about the economic care. I mean, we talk about the pandemic and how it transformed downtown San Francisco. This is that on steroids. And we're not doing anything about it. And I think that the reason I kind of dove into this question is because anytime we have something as destructive and terrible and awful as what happened in Turkey, and it's there, it's on your social media feed, it, 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 is, it is omnipresent right now. It is a reminder that we have a lot of work to do in our backyard so that we don't see a repeat of what's happened in Turkey. And their billing codes, by the way, it's not like they're substandard. This is not, you know, this is not a country that has ignored its seismic activity. So it bears a responsibility within all of us to pay attention and to think about what these fixes may may look like and more importantly to conceptualize how destructive it could be so you know the problem is that over the last five or six years is all we can think about is flood and fire and so we've kind of willed earthquakes out of existence as if climate change has retired earthquakes and we don't have to worry about them anymore 
And then, you know, until a few days ago, all we cared about was a balloon from China, you know, spied on my wife in, in, in the shower. So suddenly we go, oh, yeah, earthquakes. Yeah, isn't that something important for the Bay Area? Well, you better believe it is. Climate change didn't slow the earthquake machine one iota. They're out there. They're infrequent. But when they strike, they can be bad. Now, with that said, even a magnitude 7.8 here wouldn't cause the amount of damage we're seeing in Turkey. That's also really important because in the end, it's building quality that rules the day. And a silver lining, is there anything that we could do, anything, you know, on a day-to-day basis? You know, how, how can we prepare in even just a small way? Two ways. Number one, always have a go bag. I, I've yeah. covered so many, <laughs> so many disasters in California. Always have yeah. a go bag. Yeah. Number two, uh, you know, I mean, put pressure on your politicians. Say, mm-hmm. hey, like, we've got to get this fixed. This is an issue. I know that, you know, we're worried about fires and climate change and homelessness. And I mean, the list of things that we worry about in California is quite long, but we really have to worry about this. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, KCBS reporter Chris and Carlo. Appreciate your time. Bay Current is a production of KCBS Radio. I'm Mallory Samara. For more Bay Area stories, please subscribe to Bay Current on the Odyssey app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.